Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 3 through 14, which can be found on page 186 in the New Testament section of the Red Pew Bibles. That's page 186 in the Red Pew Bibles, Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 14. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, As we hear your words read and the message preached this morning, send your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts so that we can hear you clearly and take your word deep into our being. Without your help, Lord, how can we walk in love as your son Jesus did, as you also call us to do as your beloved children? Amen. Okay, Ephesians 5, verse 3. But immorality, or any impurity or greed, must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as the children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead, even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. And for this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Let's just uh, lift up this time to the Lord again. Lord, thank you that you are indeed the matchless king, that you've torn down the gates of the enemy, and you want us to let your light shine. And so we ask God that you would shine your light brightly through us, Open our eyes, open our ears, so that we will hear, we will see, and we will respond to you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. So if you are a a student of Scripture, or maybe you're here this morning and you're reading Scripture in a more disciplined way for the first time, One of the things I need to let you know is that you 
have just heard read one of the, what I call the harder sayings of the Bible. You've just read a section of scripture that some people say reinforces a very negative view that Christianity is a threat to civic freedom, that it may even be a threat to personal happiness. Some people call it a straitjacket. This is literally what you just read. And, and people, maybe in the church and in our culture, would hear these words as very limiting and very confining. And so, yes, these statements appear hard because they challenge cultural norms. These statements appear to be hard because in some ways they make explicit that discipleship is costly. And so my goal this morning is not to try and battle that perception, but rather my goal this morning is to help us build a bridge of understanding between the audience for whom these words were written, and that's always important when you read the Bible, it wasn't written first to us, it was written to a particular group, to an audience, so we want to try to understand the audience for whom those words were written, and then make some kind of inference for our context. So what we need to be clear about this morning is that these words were not written to the Jewish or the Gentile communities in, Eph in Ephesus. They were not written to them. They were not written to the man or the woman on the street in Ephesus. But instead, we need to establish that these words were written to a particular group of people in Ephesus who call themselves Christians. Or, as Paul says in chapter 1 of Ephesians, it's written to the church in Ephesus. And because they're addressed to Christians in Ephesus, and we could refer to Paul as Rabbi, Rabbi Shaul, he exhorts the Christians in Ephesus, in that church, to choose a way of life that reflects their new life in Christ. And you say, well, why did Paul write it in this way? It seems so harsh. It seems so... It lands in such a heavy way. Well, this is what you call contextual communication. Paul knew the situation in Ephesus. He knew the situation in Ephesus. He's on his third missionary journey when he visits Ephesus. And if you have your Bibles nearby, would you turn with me to page 132 in the New Testament section of the Bible? Because I really want you to understand, we want to build a bridge of understanding to the people who were reading these words. Page 132 in the, red section, in the New Testament section of your Red Pew Bible. And I'm suggesting to you that Paul knew the people and he knew the situation in Ephesus. He's on his third missionary journey. And if you look at verse 10 of Acts 19, and I hope that's where you are, notice what is said. Luke would have recorded about Paul that on his third missionary journey, he visits Ephesus, and he stayed in Ephesus for how long? For two years. So that, and this is a line that you just want to look at over and over again and just, and just marvel, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard 
the word of the Lord. Now look over at verse 20. Look at what happened in verse 20. It says that because Paul stayed there so long and he continued to serve in that community, it said that the word of the Lord grew mightily and it prevailed. His ministry was so effective that it created a riot. Look at verses 19, chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. About that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. And that's a, that's a pejorative way that people described Christianity back then, the way. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis is a, a Greek goddess, a mythological Greek goddess. Her Roman name was Diana. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the artisans. These he gathered together with the workers of the same trade. It's like the Chamber of Commerce in Ephesus. And he said, men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. You also see and hear not only in Ephesus, but in almost the whole of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that God's made with hands are not God's. So that's the charge. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis will be scorned and she will be deprived of her majesty and brought all a that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. So in the minds of these business people, Paul and his message were bad for business. And according to the business people, they agreed that he needs to be stopped. And so a riot got started. And they arrested two of Paul's friends and they dragged them into this amphitheater that kicked off this massive riot. And what I want you to hear from this, my friends, is that the message of Jesus, it's the best news in the world. It's good news. It's the most powerful message in the world. It changes lives. It changes cultures. It changes cities. But I also want you to know that the message of Jesus is a message that ignites provocation. So Paul knew the people. He'd been there two years. Here's another thing that he knows. He knows the social and the religious climate of Ephesus. And I was reading as I did some research on this, a book written by Joy Jacobs, where she writes in her book, They Were Women. This is what she wrote about Ephesus and about the worship of the goddess Artemis. She writes that the great festivals in the worship of Artemis, or Diana, often resulted in sexual orgies, regarded as safety valves so that monogamy could be possible during the balance of the year, fertility and, and Artemis was considered a fertility goddess. Fertility was considered a secret gift, a blessing to be procured from the goddess of all living things, man, human beings. Man will never die as long as he continues the human race. Therefore, propagation of the race was man's claim to eternal life and thus an acceptable form of worship. 
John Stott, in his commentary, essentially confirms what this woman wrote. He says, basically, immorality was rife in Asia. And when he says Asia, he's talking about Turkey, Western Turkey. Immorality was rife in Turkey. And since the Greek goddess Artemis, or Diana of the Ephesians, was regarded as a fertility goddess, sexual orgies were regularly associated with her worship. So it was practices like these that shaped Paul's teaching. And so if you, if you go back to Ephesians then and look at chapter 4 and verse 17, you'll see where Paul says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. The Gentiles or the nations don't live the way everyone else is living. So here's my point. If the economic and the social and the religious and the political contexts are indeed accurate, then I want you to again to listen to Paul's words and see if they make sense in the light of the conditions of his day. Here's what he said. And we heard it read, let's hear it read a second time. But fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among saints. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this, that no fornicator or impure person or one who is greedy, that is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be associated with them. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord your light. Live as children of the light, for the, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly, but everything is exposed by the light. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He wasn't writing it to the political powers in Ephesus. He didn't write these words to the religious groups in Ephesus. He didn't write these words to the man on the street in Ephesus. Paul wasn't trying to restrict anyone's civil rights or their freedoms. He wrote these words to the church. Psychologists, sociologists, historians all confirm the potency of one's culture, how that culture can shape and influence thinking and behavior. And what the rabbi is listing here, I believe, is an accurate de depiction of what life in Ephesus at that time was like. But he wants the readers to know, and I think he wants us to know, that that is one way to live, but there is another way to live. And he mentions it in the same reading. It's that new life in Christ. That because of their new life in Christ, Paul essentially says, but you, you the church, you are part of a new culture. 
You're part of a new society. In fact, he uses the word kingdom. You're part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. And with that comes some new cultural norms. Notice again what he says in verses 7 and 8. He says, don't, don't, don't associate with them because once you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live, live as children of the light. He's saying this very specifically to the Christians. When you live as children of the light, he says, you produce the fruit of goodness and what is right. And then, I, this is one of my life verses in verse 10. He says, the motivation for living in the light comes from a desire to do what pleases the Lord. So he says in verse 10, try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. In part, try to find out what pleases the Lord. Because there was once a time when all you were concerned about was finding out what pleases you, what would please the goddess Artemis. But now that you're under new government, find out what pleases the Lord. And I think what that places upon the church in Ephesus and what that places upon us as Christians today is that we need to then make a choice. Make a choice. Paul is calling the church to holiness in three big areas. We, we don't have the time to go into the nuances of all that he's calling them to, but let's just use big categories. He's calling the church to holiness in sex. He's calling the church to holiness in speech. And he's calling the church to holiness in worship. Holiness in worship. And as a student of church history and a student of history, I have observed three big ways in which religious communities have responded to this call of God to be different. Three big ways. And let me just quickly share them with you. One response is withdrawal. Withdrawal. I remember when uh, a few weeks ago, a group of us, our 27 pilgrims, and you're going to be hearing more about our group after the worship service, but the 27 of us, on one of the hottest day of our stay in the Holy Land, we traveled south to the Judean wilderness, and we literally went to the northwestern side of the Dead Sea. And we were in the middle of the desert, and before us, we were looking at these caves. What you're looking at are these caves that have been in that part of the world forever. We understand them now to be the place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. The Qumran community lived there in the middle of the desert. They established their lives. They were able to bring water and create water, not create water, but, but, but harness uh, wells in that part of the world. They had farms. They fed themselves. And you say, well, where did these people come from? This monastic community, they were called Essenes. They were once part of the bustling religious community of Jerusalem. But somewhere along the way, there was this major rift that occurred between this group and the general religious community and the religious system in Jerusalem. And these Essenes considered Jerusalem to be corrupt, bankrupt, to have totally missed God. And so what did they do? They withdrew from Jerusalem and they established a community in the desert. Why did they do that? They did it so as to maintain purity and holiness 
and they were waiting for the apocalypse. And in those caves, they found these scrolls on which the Old Testament and other writings were found. And even today, there are people who believe that the most faithful way to live one's life in the world is to avoid certain kinds of people and cultures and scenarios and practices and instead live in what I call these religious subcultures. And you, you, you get the glimpse of that when you read the Gospels where the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, why don't your disciples wash their hands after being out among the public? Jesus cautioned them and said, guys, be careful, because it is not what's on the outside that makes a person impure. It's what's on the inside, because it is out of the heart. And Jesus used the very same word that Paul used, porneia, to describe all manner of sexual misdeeds. He said, it is out of the heart that comes porneia, that comes hatred and anger and, and, and that ugly, ugly list. It's not what's on the outside. So no, we don't make a big deal about washing our hands because we aren't, we aren't like you Pharisees or the Essenes, you withdraw yourself from other people. So that's one option that historically people have taken. Here's a second option that some people take when they read words like, like the rabbis. They take what I call assimilation or accommodation. Another way then is to live that way. It's a copycat. We blend in with the culture we lose all religious distinctions, and this is what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5.13 when he said that the salt can actually lose its saltiness. And in this scenario, the church then no longer leads, but the church follows and adopts the values of that culture. Now, in fairness, some will argue that what many people who do that are trying to do is they're trying to be to be open, to be inclusive. They don't want to come across in a condemning way. So they just go along and they assimilate and they copy the rest of the culture so as not to stand out. And that is indeed another way that people have responded when they hear the words of Paul. There's a third way that I think is also demonstrated historically and in scripture. And that is what I call critical engagement. So no, I do not subscribe to withdrawal and I also don't subscribe to this accommodation where we copy what's going on around us. I tend to see the scriptures asking us to engage in critical engagement. So if you have your Bible still, would you just quickly turn with me to page 106? My time is running out. I got chastised for preaching too long last week. So I'm going to bring it home now. Turn with me quickly to page 106. Critical engagement. And I want you to look at, it. you're looking at John 17, verses 15 through 18. I think this is the faithful way to go. This is what Jesus wants the church to do. Look at verse 15. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Do you see that? So that's not withdrawal. But I'm asking you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world. So not withdrawal and also not assimilation. We don't belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. And then Jesus then takes us to the third option, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, as you have sent me, and Jesus is praying to God the Father, and he says, God, as you have sent me into the world, so I send, so I send them into the world. That is what we call critical 
engagement. We're in the world, but we're not off the world. We're not called to withdraw. We're not called to blend in. We're called to engage around us with the world, with love, with mercy, with humility, with obedience to our God. Or going back to what Paul says, verses, uh, chapter 5, verse 10 of Ephesians, he says, then your job is to try to find what pleases the Lord. And when you find what pleases the Lord, live that way. And when you live that way, you become light and your light is shining. You're children of the light and you're shining in the world. And, he, and Jesus said, don't, don't hide your light. Don't put it under a bushel. Let your light, that's what we were singing, let your light shine. Now, I may not have convinced you and it's okay. Some of you may still say, but Pastor Ray, what you're forgetting is that it still does seem dehumanizing that God would dictate to people about sex and about joking and about, and about how to live your life in this world. And you will say, well, look, who am I to fight God? God is all-powerful. God expects me to come up to God. God isn't the one who is coming to me. And if God says this is the way to live, then I guess I have no choice. And, and I don't look at it that way. Now, other religions may look at it that way, but Christianity doesn't see it that way. In fact, Christianity has a very radical, different approach. And what Christianity says is that God adjusted to us in his incarnation, in Jesus' atonement, his death on the cross. Jesus became a limited human being. He adjusted. He submitted to our condition as sinners. He died in our place to forgive us. And I think it is the most profound thing that we will ever read in all of Scripture that God became one of us and walked in our shoes and walked in Jerusalem and walked all over the land that we visited. What Jesus is saying is, no, you don't adjust to me. I will adjust to you. And when I adjust to you, I will change you. And I will serve you. And I will, I will sacrifice my life for you. And so the big takeaway for us this morning is that if God has done that for us, God becoming one of us, God adjusting for us, now that we are in Christ, and I think that's what Paul is saying, we then are called to do the same to God and to others. And so there you have it. Two ways to live. This is not a condemnation of culture. This is not withdrawal from culture. This is not blending in and doing as the Romans do, but this is critically engaging with the arts and with music and with politics and with business and with education and with law. The church being salt in the earth, bringing the light of Christ to, 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 to all those spheres, that's what we're called to do. And so we live no longer for ourselves. We live no longer for the gods and the goddesses of Evanston and North America. We live to please our God. And if you read it with those lens on, that these words are written to the people of God, then the meaning begins to open up and it begins to challenge the assumptions and the commitments that we have made. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen. Amen.